good to, good to see you all this morning. It's good to be with you and worship. Uh, I hope that, you know, I, I'd say there's different reasons that you came today. Um, but I want to, I guess, propose to you a, a goal for our meeting together. And whenever I get up and share, generally, uh, my prayer, I have, I have two things I pray. Uh, two things that I'm, I feel like inspired by scripture, I'm motivated for, to the ends of, and uh, my heart in preparing a message for you guys uh, is twofold really. I want to see, and so I'm, I'm saying, if you don't know why you came today, like you could adopt this as your purpose, and you could just apply it for the rest of your days, really. But I want to see uh, in you, for you, um, the abundant life that Jesus promised. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundant. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have abundant life. So you live in a world, um, the enemy is at work to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, and some of us, he gives us a velvet prison, meaning uh, he gives us comfortable surroundings, things going well. He gives us pleasures that we enjoy for a time uh, that ensnare and trap us. And some of us are suffering under uh, his efforts to steal, kill, and destroy. And we, we uh, experience that intensely and negatively. But either way, the enemy's purposes for your life, if you're not living under Christ's purposes, He's working to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. So I come, and when I'm preaching to you, one of the things that I feel like God's laid on my heart is I want to see the people that show up here and the few people that listen online, I, I want to preach the, the Bible in a way that will allow you, if you do what uh, Colossians 3.16, this is what came into my head this morning, if you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you let God's words dwell in you richly, I think the consequence will be abundant life, transformation of your relationships, your mental, your personal health, your spiritual health, um, the atmosphere around you, your household. I believe those things, it may be the kingdom, you know, it says it's like yeast, you work in a dough, it starts out small and it'll impact everything. I want to see that, okay? Um, and the other thing I want to see is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. I want to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I, I see you as people that I love and I care about your well-being and I want the abundant life of Christ manifest in your, in your life. But I also see you as people who have value in the kingdom of God and you have a role and a task to play. You're not just a tool. I don't want to see you ever as just a tool that, uh, you know, that I'm... Uh, you're going to whip into shape and send out for the kingdom, and I'm not going to care about your well-being. But I also don't want to just see you as, you know, these, these little, innocent, helpless uh, people that just need coddling and, and tender care. Uh, we're to grow up and to mature in our faith. And, and both of those things, when I preach, I want both of those realities to happen. All right, so if you need a purpose for being here today, um, embrace that and then parse out what I'm saying. Take all of the scripture that I read and then parse out the parts that Nathaniel 
elaborates on. And let the words of Christ dwell in you richly so that you're transformed by his word. All right? Okay, so that's a big preface, I guess. But I want to pray for those things. Lord, we want to see, uh, we want to open your word. We want to learn. We want to be changed. We want truth. Uh, We love truth more than we love being right. So you show us where we're wrong. And we'll embrace your truth and we'll adjust our lives. We're not going to kick back and push back. We're not going to kick against the goads, as uh, you said to Paul. Um, We're going to embrace your promptings, and we want to be transformed. We desire your abundant life to be our reality, and we desire to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so for those reasons, for your glory, we're asking as we open your word that your purposes are accomplished. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we're in, uh, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're in a series, um, and it takes the title from 1 Timothy 3, where he says that, uh, he talks about God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. But we're really examining Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, his instructions, and we're kind of uh, sitting under Paul's discipleship, if you will, um, as we take in his words to these men. And so 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be today. And um, last time I preached in this series, I preached 1 Timothy chapter 3, which as I was thinking about it was, uh, it was going over the character or the qualifications of elders and leaders. It was talking about the character of someone who serves the Lord. And uh, as I think about this chapter, uh, it's more about the constitution, I guess, if I have to have a word that starts with the same letter, of someone who serves the Lord. The character, 1 Timothy 3, and the constitution, what makes us up, uh, what's the steel in our spine, if you will, uh, what's our foundation, what's our structure, what's our skeleton, what holds us up and motivates us and empowers us. And so we're going to see it's, it's, uh, there's two attitudes, really, which is not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of Christ, and taking up and taking on suffering in the cause of Christ. And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul's uh, last letter that he wrote. He's in prison again. At the end of Acts, he was in prison. Um, scholars believe he was released, and then he was imprisoned again. So he's sending out these letters. He knows that the end has come. He's under the reign of Nero, who's persecuting Christians, blaming them, scapegoating them for the burning of Rome. And so a persecution is facing the church. And Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, his protege, his disciple. And so we'll just read the whole chapter, but I'll, I'll focus on a few areas. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up. It starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to point out one thing there. Uh, If you read Paul's letters, especially his letters to the church, he usually starts them with a similar greeting. It's slightly different. Does anybody know how he usually greets the churches? He says grace and Grace and peace to you. But when Paul writes to Timothy, when he writes to Titus, when he writes to men who are ministering the gospel under his tutelage, he adds mercy. 
I don't know if that's significant or not, but he says, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God. Sturgeon, in, his, in one of his uh, sermons, said, he, he said the preacher, the, the minister, the person that's serving God um, needs an extra dose of mercy because one will be judged more harshly, uh, and two, you carry a heavy burden in the minister. So he said, I'll take that extra mercy that Paul gives to the guys who minister. So I'll take the extra mercy. We're reading this letter. We're, we're receiving it as a, unto us. So take grace, mercy, and peace today. I thought that was interesting. It stood out to me. Um, he goes on to say, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So he's, uh, he's, he's giving the personal touch. He's, he's remembering his relationship. He's thinking fondly about Timothy. And uh, overlaying what I shared already, you know, he's concerned about his well-being. He's concerned about his soul. He's concerned about his, his life and his faith, his, his personal abundant life. And he gets into matters of the kingdom and how Timothy serves the kingdom. But he's, he's addressing Timothy first as a son. He's reminding him of his love. And he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And I want to read this to you uh, in the amplified version. Because if you, under, if you want to know what it is to follow Jesus, what the Bible means, a lot of people claim to believe in Jesus. They claim to be Christians even whether that's a cultural application or, or uh, just by default or without understanding. But this is what a sincere faith means uh, when you follow Jesus. Uh, I'm reading the Amplified here. It says, I'm calling up memories of your sincere and unqualified faith. This is the definition, the description. The leaning of your entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. This is what it means to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to have faith. I'm going to read it again. It reminds me of the song we were singing, Stand in Your Love. We're going to stand in His love. Um, it says, leaning, the leaning of your entire personality on God in Christ in absolute trust and confidence in His power, wisdom, and goodness. So if you start with sincere faith, that's where you begin. You stand in His love and we're going to talk about being ashamed and dealing with shame. That's the place that you fight from. That's the foundation that you stand upon. So all the things that Scripture tells us to do, that's the starting point. We never, ever obey the law. We never follow the rules in order to earn God's love. We begin by faith, embracing Christ, believing the gospel, and then we apply those things to our life. He goes on to say, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame. To take the efforts that are at his disposal to stir up, to energize, to rekindle his flame, his fire, his passion, his intensity, his love and his desire for God. It's appropriate to do that. It's appropriate to preach to yourself, to, to bring yourself to, to, the, to the scriptures, to bring yourself in prayer to God, to sing songs to God, to stir yourself up. 
um, there's a movement, I guess a counter movement, uh, maybe in the church. And I've been reflecting on this as I've been thinking about shame uh, against emotionalism. You know, there's like, there's extremes. There's stoicism almost in the church, no emotions. You just embrace it with faith and you, you stare it down with a stony face until you die. And then there's an emotionalism that is extreme and extravagant and, and, and over the top. And I think there's, there's two ditches, but we don't abandon emotion. God gave us emotion. We put it in its proper place. We don't abandon passion. We don't abandon, abandon uh, an inner fire, a burning for Jesus. We're not to abandon that. In fact, we're to fan it into flame. We're to keep it going. We're to continually add fuel to the fire that burns for God and to fan it into flame. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about, what we, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's appropriate and right thing to do. We're to stir one another up to love and good deeds, and we're to stir ourselves up to service, to serving God, to loving Him, to following Him. And we're to do that because God gave us a spirit. He gave us His spirit. We're to stir up the spirit within us. We're to, to feed, to nurture, to care for, to attend to the flame that God has put into our heart, the fire. Matt knows what I'm talking about. He was testifying this week about uh, encountering God in a new way where he was filled with the Spirit and it was like a electricity running through him. He said, I've been shocked before, but it was, you know, it was kind of like that, but it was different. You have to attend to that, that encounter. You have to attend to that place. God's given us his Spirit. And it's a Spirit not of fear. Not of fear. It's a simple test, okay? If you're facing something down and you're feeling fear about that, it's not the Spirit. If you feel uh, a check, if you feel a warning, you can discern this. You can learn to, to discern the Spirit. You might feel a warning. You might feel uh, a check. You might feel a hesitance. You might feel, um, uh, you know, a flag, a red flag. People use different terms to talk about it. The Spirit will warn you, but if you're feeling a fear, if you're feeling an anxiety, if you're feeling an overwhelming negative emotion, Regarding something, you need to test that spirit. We've not been given a spirit of fear. We've not been given a spirit of anxiety. We've been given a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. Some versions say self-control. Uh, I think I would be probably right in saying, uh, not using hyperbole to say, anxiety is somewhat of an epidemic in our society. Which is interesting. We are probably the most well cared for society uh, that's ever existed. You know, just if you have indoor plumbing, you live better than kings. You know, a couple, a few decades back. You know, you, you, you. We are, we are blessed and cared for. Uh, there's safety nets all over the place. There's, there's provision, and yet, even the most provided for people struggle with anxiety. And that's not from God. I don't want to put any condemnation on you if you deal with anxiety. I know many of the people I love, many of you that I know well, are dealing with that. But the, can't, the, the, the counter to that, the antidote, is to be filled with the Spirit, fanning into flame the Spirit of God within you. 
and facing down the world with faith, with power, love, and sound mind. Paul goes on to say, therefore, do not be ashamed of two things. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us. Thank you. Does that sound raspy? Maybe a little dry and some little parched. So remember, the context is Paul is writing his last letter. It's like his last will and testament, his last communication probably to Timothy. He wants Timothy to come to him, but there's no guarantee that Paul will survive, that Timothy will be able to make it. He's laying it on the line. These are his most pressing concerns, and he doesn't want Timothy, who's lived the book of Acts, I'll remind you, who's seen amazing, miraculous things, who's encountered the Spirit in in amazing ways, He doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And and I always appreciate when Scripture warns us about things because it knows we're going to need it. Like, I I take comfort in that. We're going to need to be reminded not to be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord. And I was thinking this week, uh, and I don't want to get too far off into things I don't 100% understand, but I was reflecting and and meditating on the, the idea of shame. The idea of shame. And, and I, you know, shame is, shame is a tool, I think, that society uses to shape us. Shame is a tool that's used to shape and to conform people. Uh, you know, if, if you are displaying, especially if we lived in a close-knit community, if you're displaying behaviors that maybe are, are harmful or troubling, or annoying, or uh, counter to the aims of your social group, of society, there's pressure to conform. There's, there's a shaming that takes place. Sometimes it's subtle. You know, it's, it's uh, a rolling of the eyes, it's a turning of the back, it's an ignoring, it's a neglecting, it's... Uh, you know, a, a talking behind your back. Society uses shame to shape us, to fit its norms, to accomplish its ideals. Uh, we send kids to school, you know, some ways. Part of the way that they use that, there's, there's peer pressure that conforms them to behave in a certain way. And you have to be very careful about the groups that you allow your kids to enter into. Because they will be, there will be shame around behaviors positive and negatively, to shape them to conform. Are you following me a little bit? Uh, There's there's subtle ways that society puts shame on people and it nudges them into place. And I don't know, uh, we tend to think of shame when we talk about shame as a negative thing, Um, but sometimes, to a degree, parents use, use this technique. If they use it well and wisely, I don't think it's all the time a negative. We don't behave this way. We don't act that way in this family. We don't, that's not something we do. That's not an okay behavior. There's, there's a subtle and, and a, a gentle application that nudges people's behavior in certain ways. 
Paul actually employed this if you read some of his letters. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he told the Corinthian church, uh, come to your right mind and sin no more, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It was a gentle application. This is not the way you ought to be behaving. and We need to adjust our behavior. Whenever they couldn't settle disputes among themselves, they had to go to lawyers, like secular uh, lawyers in the, in the Roman world, because he said, is there no one wise among you? I say this to your shame. Is there no one wise among you to help you settle these disputes? He, he gently applied shame and negative reinforcement to shape behavior. <clears throat> and I, we have to have the wisdom of Scripture to parse out when that's appropriate and when it's out of line. All right? Uh, if, uh, let's say there's a, a, I have a son uh, who is exuberant and energetic, uh, slightly aggressive. And, uh, you know, when he, if he goes into a peer group and they don't approve of his behavior, they're either going to ignore him, they're going to uh, yell at him or make fun of him or roll their eyes at him, or walk away, they're going to apply shame in a way that shapes him. And not all of that is negative. I used to think I want to protect my kids, you know, from peer pressure and from the world and from any negative interaction that they could have that could make them feel bad about themselves. And I've shared this before, but, you know, sometimes my kids need to feel bad about the way that they act. And they need to be nudged into line. And sometimes their, their peer group, I'm keeping a careful eye on it, but sometimes... Uh, shame from their peers has more effect than shame from their pops, you know. But the world has a value system that doesn't fully align with the kingdom of God. And they will apply shame that will keep you from proclaiming the gospel. We need to know the scripture. We need to let the words of Jesus dwell in us richly. And we don't need to be ashamed. I say this often. If God calls something good, don't let it be spoken bad of. If God calls something good, believe it as good and don't be ashamed of it. Society would shame us off of biblical values and it will shame us away from preaching the gospel. And Paul is telling Timothy that you can, there's something you can do. There's a way that you can adjust yourself so that you're not ashamed of the gospel. A lot of times we just, we, we feel a certain way and it's just the way that we are and we can't change and can't do anything about it. We can't adjust our behavior. We can't change our mind. We can't change our personality. And that's just the way we are and that's just the way it is. But Paul's telling Timothy, fanning into flame the gift and not being ashamed of the gospel are things that with Christ's help are under your control. That you need to keep an eye on. And so in my Christian life, as a young man, I've, I've felt shame at various times. I've felt the applied shame from the world attempting to shape my behavior. When I was young, my wife and I went to India. We were involved in, in missions. And when I would talk about those experiences or I'd talk about uh, missions, there were people that were my age that maybe were, uh, you know, going to college, sitting under 
being educated in state schools. And they would, when I talked about missions, they'd talk about, oh, you're just a colonizer. They would, they would apply shame. Like if you were concerned with people that were suffering around the world, your only motive was you wanted to colonize them and, and take over their country and destroy their culture and make them be like a white man. There was an application of shame wanting me to think something bad about something God called good. And while I didn't embrace their mindset, you know, I turned down the volume. I didn't say as much about the things that God was doing. My behavior was shaped. And in ways, I was ashamed. You know, when I would talk about it to some of the same people, I would talk about Jesus. I would talk about following Christ. They would use shame. They'd say, well, you know, the church has done this. The church has, the church has done that. What about the Crusades, you know? They'd, they'd throw up things in my face that would make me ashamed. And there are things that people taking on the name of Christ or in the name of the church that have done that are shameful. And there's no harm in recognizing that. I'm not an apologist for every historical thing that the church has done. I don't have to make excuses or apologize for it. I'm called to preach the gospel. And I better not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation. Jesus himself said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father. Jesus was concerned about us being ashamed. And so I don't want, I don't want to shame you today. I want to motivate you. I want to put steel in your spine that you don't have to be swayed by the pressure that comes from the world that would quiet you down. You know, the world is constantly engaging in shame campaigns. And it uses labels to quiet you down, to silence your voice, to get you in line, to shape you, to conform to the image that they want you to conform to. You know, uh, I worked at the powerhouse and uh, I interacted, uh, let's say 10 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, I, there was a group, a cohort, if you will, and I've, I've shared this, of, of young people that were being raised. They were mainly people that weren't, you know, that maybe weren't in the church, that didn't have a biblical background, that I was sharing, attempting to share the gospel with, to, to shape their minds. Um, and so they were Facebook friends, you know, and I see their, or in social media friends, and I'll see their posts, and, you know, I would see, uh, depending on what they were into, I would see the influences that they were receiving and reverberating, echoing. You know, and I would see them get on these campaigns, and I think Tumblr was a big source for this, online blogs, online influencers. Uh, they would be on campaigns against, and they would use shame. They were, it was like they were embracing a message, uh, and I, I would say I think that there were, there were powerful forces influencing them, whether those are principalities, those are corporations. They would embrace a campaign, and then they would be warriors for shame to shape their peers. Um, you know, one, uh, all of a sudden, these uh, 19, 20-year-old girls who really, 
you know, have no experience and knowledge in the world. They were experts on vaccines. And they took up, this is before the pandemic, this is before COVID, and I'm not going down this rabbit hole, but they would, they would go on these rants about anti-vaxxers. And they would shame these people uh, who had concerns. And I'm saying this is before COVID when that became a bigger thing. They would go on these shame campaigns. And they had no knowledge, no expertise, no understanding, but they, they heard these influencers talking about it, and they adopted a mindset, and they went on a shame campaign. They, they were big on, uh, they got on a kick one time about, you know, rehoming dogs was one of their things. Like, if you have a pet, you should commit to it for life, and if you try to rehome your dog, you're just an evil, terrible person. If you, if you uh, don't treat animals like royalty, uh, in every single way, then you're a despicable human being. There was shame they put on that. Uh, the, of course, if you were pro-life, there was this campaign that they put shame that you hate women. There's a shame campaign, all right? Um, now, I'm not trying to go off on any kind of list of talking points. This is an observation that I made, and I could probably dig those up and point them out to you. There was a tool that they were, they became uh, purveyors of, users of, a tool of shame that manipulated to conformity. And I am speaking to you today to say, do not be manipulated by shame. Really, shame, this is my understanding of it, shame comes when you don't get the approval of the people from whom you want approval. Would you say that? Okay. So what I will put to you as the antidote to this is you have to decide whose approval you want. Which approval are you after? Now, you may be a person with some serious flaws, and the, you may say, the world's trying to shame me because, you know, I'm doing this thing. Well, maybe you... You're just doing a bad thing, you know. You have to examine yourself. And you go to the Scripture. Scripture tells us, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You examine your life against that. You have people that you trust, that you are submitted to, that you... Uh, know or are after the same God, the same approval, and you let God adjust your life. But you do not, do not be ashamed of the testimony. You know, where I took uh, the kids that meet at my house on Sunday night, we went to see the Jesus Revolution. I think that's the title of the movie about the, the Jesus people movement from the, the 70s. Um, and one of the things that hit me was, uh, you know, the, the hippie preacher, Lonnie, um, he, in the midst of this counterculture, he uh, was dressed like them. He behaved like them. He was barefoot like them. He had the same haircut. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. A lot of time, a lot of ways, the gospel was counter to what they were doing. Living a life in Christ was counter to the the idea of free love and experimentation with drugs. And he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. And he was incredibly effective in his generation. 
it struck me. Do not be ashamed. You know, there's, uh, <clears throat> I guess, so what I'm saying is, you know, there is shame that comes appropriately when we've done something wrong. And the scripture gives us a mechanism, if you will, for dealing with it. We bring it to Jesus, and we leave it at Jesus, and we receive our forgiveness, and we go forward in faith. You know, in, Mark, in Luke chapter 6, there was the sinful woman came to the Pharisee's house, anointed Jesus' feet. You remember that story? She lived a shameful life. There was an application of shame towards her, uh, mainly to make her feel bad, not really to adjust her behavior, because even if she did, they weren't going to accept her. But there was societal shame being placed on her, and she comes to Jesus' feet, and then they tried to apply shame to Jesus because he let her touch his feet and wash his feet. And I love how Jesus dealt with it. He said, in Luke 7, 48, he said, your sins are forgiven. And then they kept talking about it, so he, he applied more truth to it, and he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's how you deal with shame. If you have shame that you're dealing with from sin, you go to Jesus, you confess your sin, and you hear the words of Jesus and you let him dwell in you richly, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You can deal with your shame from your past. But then you have to deal with the shame that's not well-placed shame, the shame that comes uh, from a misapplication or, or misalignment of where you're seeking approval. <clears throat> and I'm going to show you how Paul dealt with shame. He went to the gospel. At the end of uh, that chapter I was reading, he was telling about Jesus. He said, um, Share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Here's how he's not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He knows in whom he has believed. He's not ashamed because he knows where he's placed his stake. He's placed his life. He's placed his desire for approval. It's called the fear of the Lord. He's placed his life in the hands of Christ, and he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he knows he's able to keep what he's entrusted to him. Everything that he's put, his stock in Jesus, he knows, he's convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to him. You know, if you put your money, your trust, a lot of people put their trust in the Silicon Valley Bank. I don't know if you heard about this. The bank failed. It, it, it went under. The Silicon Valley Bank, Valley Bank. These people had all this money in this bank, and this bank has just failed. They've trusted in this institution. It's failed them. Jesus will not fail you. Every single day we put our trust in institutions. We put our trust in, uh, you know, in, in, the, in just norms we, in a, of our society. And we kind of wake up believing that the lights will be on, the, the heat will be on, the power will be on. You know, the, the police will be 
uh, keeping the peace more or less, that uh, we'll go to work and we'll have a job, we'll go to the bank and we'll be able to withdraw our money or use our, our accounts. We just implicitly, without thinking, put our trust in these institutions, which may fail us. I don't want you to be fearful. It's not, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. I don't want you to have anxiety, but I want you to evaluate in whom you put your trust. In the same way, and to a greater degree, we ought to be able to go throughout our life without fear, without anxiety, without being ashamed of the gospel, without being ashamed of being a follower of Jesus, with boldness, without fear of suffering that may come from preaching Christ. We ought to be able to operate as though we have complete confidence in knowing the one in whom we've trusted. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, you're going to be tempted to be ashamed. You live in a culture that has a variety of influences. There was pressure, uh, a shame upon Timothy, not only to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but also, Paul said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. There were people who were uh, workers with Paul who abandoned him partially because they were ashamed that he was in prison. There was pressure from uh, the Jews of the day upon the church, shaming them for some of the practices that they didn't do or some of the practices they did do. There was pressure, Jewish pressure upon the church. They were trying to put shame on them to shape their behavior. There was pressure from the Roman society, uh, Roman institutions, the leadership, the mores of society, also the religion that the Romans adopted. There was pressure from them, uh, and depending on which city, the pressure may be different. You can see that in Paul's letter. Depending on which gods and goddesses were emphasized in the cities where the church was established, there was unique pressure that was applied to them to shame them, to either quiet them down or to get them in line to follow society. There was pressure from the philosophers and from the Greeks Maybe you were an intellectual. There was shame that they applied to you if you believed in the resurrection. And so there was pressure from all these angles to to tone down, to adjust, to abandon, to adopt, to take on, to, to sneak in things that weren't biblical, that weren't scriptural, that weren't of Christ, so that you would fit in a little bit more to the culture. And I wish today, I hope and I pray that God will give us the strength, the knowledge of His grace and His goodness, and the strength to be immune to those influences. To evaluate those influences. Now, if you had to live your life every single day, like, you know, analyzing down to the, to the smallest detail, like, is this pressure I'm feeling... Uh, Shame applied to me from my society, and which aspect of society is applying the shame, and how am I to apply and adjust? And uh, maybe this is my personal, um, you know, maybe it's a personal flaw that I actually need to adjust, or maybe this is uh, where I need to fit in with society, and maybe this is where I need to adapt myself so that people like me better. If you had to analyze that, every single influence, every single decision, every single aspect, uh, you would be exhausted mentally. Your brain would probably like. Smoke would come out your ears. 
You need to know the Bible. You need to look to Christ. And you need to see if God calls it good, it's good. If God says to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, I was reading in Romans, and they were talking about the foods, you know, like which foods you eat, which foods you don't eat. And um, one, of the, one of the principles that Paul drew out, uh, he said, anything not done in faith is sin. Um, and I was thinking about that. And uh, your no, okay, your no and your yes are powerful things that God has given you. It's part of your personhood. You can say no to things, and you can say yes to things. And if society is moving you to do something, and you're not sure about it, you can't do that with faith. You can apply your no, you can hit the brakes, and you don't have to give an explanation. No, I don't, I don't feel right. I can't do this in faith. I'm not going to do this. Right? You can apply your no. Now, you can think of all kinds of scenarios where that might be relevant. Someone says, you know, well, what justification do you have for doing this? I said no. I don't feel comfortable doing this. You don't have to be afraid to not participate in culture. And at the same time, you don't have to be afraid to do things that Scripture gives you permission to do. You don't need permission from society to do that. You can be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, but you preach the gospel. You follow Christ. You stand out like stars in the dark skies. You stand out as a light against the darkness of our society. You apply your no and you apply your yes, and you don't have to be ashamed. You look to God for approval. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man is a snare, it's a trap, it's a folly. You look to God for approval, and you don't have to be ashamed. You can evaluate. If you keep getting the same feedback from people, you might say, well, maybe I'm a little bit heavy-handed. Maybe I'm a little bit, uh, maybe the way I come across, uh, there is some, something in this. If you get feedback from people you trust, you know, consider what's going on. But if your feedback from society is, you shouldn't preach the gospel, you can reject that outright. <clears throat> and Paul goes on, he tells him uh, to share in the sufferings. He's warning Timothy that sufferings are coming, and I'll, I'll wrap up. I'm going to wrap up here. <clears throat> but when it comes to service of Christ, Paul doesn't really address sin. He's confident uh, that Timothy's walking, although he did say, Grace, mercy, and peace to you. Uh, there are hurdles to service of God. There's sin in our lives. And usually the close follow-up is shame. There's shame from sin in our lives. But there's also shame that shapes us from society, which we have to overcome. And then a third hurdle is suffering. There's suffering. Anyone who wants to live a righteous life in Jesus will face persecution. Suffering will come. And you don't have to be afraid of suffering. In fact, I think most of us, if, uh, if we're dealing with anxieties, we're dealing with fears, um, we're suffering before it's even arrived at our plate. We're, we're, uh, we're struggling with potential suffering. You know, we're like, we're taking on the pain of suffering before it's even manifest, and it probably will never manifest, okay? 
But you can deal with suffering. There's grace to deal with suffering. There's grace to deal with suffering when it arrives at your doorstep. But if it hasn't come to your doorstep, you don't have to deal with it. If you're not having grace to deal with things that you're thinking about, maybe it's because it's not even there yet, and you don't need the grace to deal with it because it hasn't come, so you're in the wrong place. You're in the future, and God doesn't have it at your door today. He gives you daily bread. If that what, what came to your door for the day doesn't help you deal with what you're worried about for tomorrow, then maybe you need to lay that down, and whenever tomorrow comes, you'll have what you need to deal with that. There's suffering that will come, and we can't be afraid of suffering. But I think the fear of shame or the feeling of shame is honestly a bigger hurdle to seeing the kingdom come than it is the fear of than the actual suffering. But Paul tells Timothy, you, there's going to be suffering. Take your share of suffering. Share in the suffering. He's like, there's an allotment of suffering. Take your part. You can deal with it because you know who you trusted, and your reward will be great. I'm going to read, I might as well read it all. Uh, finish up here. He said, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagalus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. There were people who were ashamed of Paul's suffering. And maybe they thought, well, if he was really a spiritual guy, if he really was an apostle, he may not have dealt with this. Although every other apostle dealt with suffering, persecution, and martyrdom, they were ashamed of his chains. Onesiphorus often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. I want to point out one thing here real quick. Onesiphorus cared about Paul and his physical presence. He, he, brought, he, he sought Paul out and he was physically present to Paul in his suffering. Paul also said to Timothy, um, they're writing letters, but uh, he longed to see him. He longed to see him. He wanted his physical presence. When people in your life are suffering, uh, you may not know what to do. You may not know how to care for them. But your physical presence has an impact. And Paul noted that, and that, that stood out to me. Okay, so I'm wrapping up. I want to be clear. You don't have to be ashamed. The way to overcome shame is to look to God alone for approval, to know who you've trusted, to walk, to stand in his love, like we sang. You don't, shame doesn't have a place. And you can evaluate these pressures that come from the world, and you can reject them. But ultimately, you look to Christ. If God says it's good, God says to do it, it's good, do it. God says it's bad, not to partake in it. The world says to do it, you still, you go with God. It's not that hard. But there's many pressures coming at us. Don't be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed. I'm receiving these personally. I'm evaluating my life, and I guess... I'll finish with this. I'll ask you to pray for me. I'm evaluating where I'm at in life, what I do with the hours of my day. I'm looking at the character of elders, people called to serve. I'm applying that to my life. I'm hearing what Paul says to Timothy. Can I stand up and not be ashamed of the gospel? And I'll say... I guess I'll confess, when I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
But there's been parts of me that have been ashamed to be a pastor, to be ashamed to be in ministry, that's been ashamed uh, of those things, I guess, you know? I don't, I don't know why. I felt that pressure, and I think the places that the enemy applies pressure to you have to do with your calling. And if Christ calls me to do something, I'll do it, and I won't be ashamed. I'm confessing that before you. So if, you, if you'll pray for me, whatever that means, I don't know. But I'm evaluating these things. I want to fan into flame the gift that God's given me. And I want to use it to the most. And I don't want to be influenced by the voices of the world. I want to live for Christ's approval. So I want to pray for you. Pray for me. We have communion. If you want prayer, as always, we want to pray. You can get music online. We have great musicians, but you can get world-class music online. We have okay messages. You can get world-class messages online. The one thing you can't get is what Paul, Paul wanted to see Timothy, and he appreciated the presence of uh, Onesiphorus. It's hard to get ministry through a computer screen. If you want ministry, if you want prayed for, uh, I'm not, I'll just say it's an open, an open invitation. If you want to pray, uh, areas you've dealt with shame, whether it's shame that you've actually, something you've done, or shame where you've been influenced by the world. If you want ministry, please come forward. People will pray for you. Jesus, thank you for today. I pray that uh, you can work through me, that your word uh, finds a home and it dwells in us richly, and it transforms us. We're going to take uh, communion and remember your sacrifice, your blood that was shed, your body that was broken. We don't want to be ashamed of you. We don't want to be ashamed of your call. We don't want to be ashamed of your gospel. So we ask you to move over our people. We want your abundant life, and we want to see your kingdom come.